speaker today to Liberty Sanders Lectures in Bibliography at the University of Cambridge in 1959, and the Lyle Lectures in Bibliography at Oxford in the following year. He was the president of the Bibliographical Society in 1960-61, and received the gold medal of that society in 1959. He has published books and articles of fundamental importance on medieval book trade and on medieval libraries, on the stationers' company, on type, paper, printing, publishing, on bookbinding, and on copyright and the regulation of the press. He is a bibliography of English literature, and I have great pleasure in introducing Mr. Graham Pollard, who will speak this afternoon on the scope of bibliography. consists not in the content uh, of uh, the, the matter of the text, but in the transfiguration or the alteration that is being experienced in the course of its transmission from uh, the author to us. But it can't be studied without understanding at any rate a little bit about what the text of the matter is. Now, 
that is in his name. So there's a sort of this idea about the things that how Zaidi can run. Because you see, there are a lot of things that we still carry out, not unnecessarily without writing or treating, but which are essentially op operations of the voice. We still conduct our political affairs in assemblies, which, when they make speeches, where they think uh, where the content of the speech and the attitude taken up is the essence of business, and any subsequent written records are uh, not so determined. Uh, the democracies of Athens and the Senate of Rome and the Balkan in Iceland and the Parliament in England and the Congress here. Uh, the point of it all was the actual speaking, the, the debate. And you've been speaking in so many ways so my own country. You see the history of the record debates in its earliest form and the real debates which settled the, the fate of both our countries are in utter obscurity to this day. I mean, to the process of their gathering together and the process of their semi-publication and uh, the uh, arrangements for it and the circulation of it are still things that the historians regard as already established and have no idea of the bibliographical problems that underlie the confident texts that they use uh, for writing their uh, quote, quote, uh, history, close quote. And you see, it isn't only that, but the services of the church, you see, they are thought of, composed, still performed, according to the sporting traditions and formulas that are purely oral and have been handed down as an oral and living thing. And uh, law courts, you can't do anything with law courts with anything really, but uh, process of the elucidation of truth and the pronouncement of uh, justice are things uh, brought out in the play on cross-examination. And uh, it isn't really a thing in its essence which uh, the written word, uh, of course, plays a much larger part now, but in essence it is still a verbal operation. And the theatre and university lectures. I mean, so they're still given uh, the evidence is before you. They're still given uh, by word of mouth. And if they are taught uh, by some uh, enterprising people to be of any use, they're uh, printed. But the whole process <coughs> of uh, sorting out ideas and communicating ideas in these is an oral one and not a, uh, not a written one. And it's the sort of thing that we have to keep at the back of our minds in considering uh, the scope of the bibliographical uh, analysis of the different processes through which uh, lectures which we haven't heard are transmitted to us in, on the written page. Well, you see, there are various ways and processes of uh, 
transmission, which is a subject of uh, bibliographical study. Uh, the earliest things for the literature we have is things like Homer. When you see Homer with learnt all the whole transformed books of it uh, by heart and the psyche and no doubt extra bits added where the audience clapped and some bits left out when the audience left glum in two successive performances. And one has to recognize that the text of Homer was preserved, has been preserved uh, by memory and recitation probably longer than it has been preserved in writing or in print. A larger proportion of the time is separated with them. And, um, and this is true, you see, of all literature up to, uh, well, I was going to say Caxton, but of course it isn't. It's for, uh, they did start to write, uh, write out texts of Chaucer uh, professionally before uh, they ever got a uh, hundred years or more before they ever got to printing it. And, uh, but, uh, so much of the background of the sort of thing that Chaucer was writing, uh, was, say writing, I suppose he was writing it, but it's a sort of, it is an audience that he's speaking to. And uh, the sort of apprenticeship of the putting down into writing of a uh, medieval poem obviously governed by the success of the troubadour or whatever, the wandering minstrel, or indeed the uh, one kept at home in the baronial hall, who had to think up something to keep people um, amused uh, after dinner. But when we get to um, records of how much uh, treasury there was in each particular temple or how many uh, tithes of the crops had not been collected or had been collected. And when we get to the first uh, written records of Greek in the linear B tablets from uh, Nyos, um, what, what their pamphlets say is, you know, how many jars of oil there were in and uh, who was responsible for uh, seeing that the uh, uh, replenishments were uh, organized. That is, of course, the sort of thing that is dangerous to make a memory. And that is why writing really was invented. I am not wishing here to suggest that uh, there were 
are not a certain amount of writing for medical and religious re uh, reasons. So part of the job, I think, of being a, a magician or a priest in the early times was not writing it down. I mean, if you got written down, it might be out. And there, you were not only in competition with other priests, but you had diminished the magic of uh, what you had to say. And so I think that purely magical formulae and things in early writing are not uh, perhaps very many of them. And of course, what's the power of them, you can't understand. Uh, from there, you see, you go to consider uh, the earlier productions of the sort of book uh, that we still have and of which there are in this city. That is to say, the sort of product of uh, the monks in the scriptorium and the monasteries uh, therein, uh, where, and to a few uh, monasteries in North Italy and one or two in France, uh, we owe the transmission of most of classical, or at least large part of classical texts. Uh, but maybe they needed variety. Um, it is possible, you see, to be quite certain about uh, some of these things. I mean, the, the, there's a tremendous upsurge in the fervor of people in the 12th century. Uh, there's early crusades and the immense devotion self-sacrifice, which the people who went out from the cities into the desert, and I'm not talking about, um, I'm only talking about a little island on the other side of the Atlantic there, but the rare districts that were quite unpopulated in the 12th century, and uh, quite inhospitable, and they built these large monasteries, and they intended to, um, you know, continue to occupy them. And it was necessary to find something in those times when people flooding out to them, to find something to occupy themselves in them. And they were very inward-looking uh, uh, communities, I think, very uh, admirable in so many ways. But in due course, when the intake of uh, recruits to these places uh, began to tail off a little bit, it was necessary for those who were there to devote a great deal more of their time to the administration of the estates and the uh, collection of tithes and uh, generally making life viable in these deserts uh, in Yorkshire and Devonshire and Wales and places where they had these monasteries. And in fact, with one or two notable exceptions like St. Albans and uh, early St. Edmunds, uh, the manufacture of books in monasteries uh, declined it's possible to be fairly precise about this, and perhaps I may uh, take up a moment to your time in saying how one knows. Uh, you can distinguish the elaborate findings that are due to the monks and not to any 
uh, cave people. Um, they are done in a different style. They uh, are provided with uh, apparatus for pulling them out of the shells and with bookmarkers and so forth, which are all part of the binding. And curiously enough, I think that most of them were put together without adhesive, which is like no paste, as we should say, we must have known about it at the time. It's all done with needle and thread, if there is any uh, attachment uh, of the covers to the boards. Now, that stops or tails off somewhere about 1225 or 1230. And you get um, changes, corners are cut, rather, both literally and uh, uh, metaphorically. And you get uh, false headbands and uh, those sorts of things uh, in, in the bindings. You get the bands standing out on the back, which shows that paste has been used in the, the construction of the spine. At the same time, you begin to find records of book trade and the first awful thing is that they find uh, illuminators going from place to place. And some of the finest books that have ever had pictures put in them uh, were done by those wandering characters. Now, the book I always think of, the type of book that makes Furman worth an interesting, is the Winchester Bible, which has the, and the people who made it were bought by Henri. But uh, that is about 1170, I'm saying that just towards the end of the uh, uh, 12th century. And then you begin to find illuminators having freeholds, because the one thing you do have about uh, Middle Ages uh, is records of poverty. is 
either the name of the scribe or the date of the uh, uh, writing of it. Uh, so that uh, when you find that Finland's grail uh, lives on the side of all so careful and you can fill in his uh, what his nice wife's name was and uh, what children they had, not hats of children from that happened during the uh, place on the side of all so careful. And then you find that, uh, well, well, now that he doesn't recognize uh, work of this grail. Um, you've got a little more certainty into the um, scale of uh, value. You can calibrate it a little bit for these uh, 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 medieval times when everything is so, that you don't know really when the book was written or where it was written, and you therefore can't evaluate the sort of chances of uh, where the text that they copied came from. But it's, of course, I'm putting a warning here because you see a name in um, B, you know that Finland's Grail occupied that particular site. But you don't really know enough about it. I know more about him than most. But you find that these people may illuminate the book, this, that, and the other book, but they also turn up as having painted a bit of the altar or mended the binding on so-and-so or uh, uh, in other words that they were uh, how shall I put it um, not only illuminated book binders or stationers they had plenty of other jobs as well I mean to down to being general handyman and this goes on throughout the middle ages and I can illustrate it perhaps by a story of one of the stationers at Oxford, whose name was Joseph Cox, and he was a university stationer from 1592 to 1501 when his name was Wilhelm died. And he is also what that's a, a little called the fishtail binder because of some of the tools on the bindings which he made. And I found that will, he was owed a lot of money by another Christopher called Speak. And so I thought if only I could find some books that belonged to Christopher Speak, I should uh, have a good clue as to who did the binding. But uh, when I found out in the end that Christopher Cox had been sued in the University Transcript Court for the payment of a large sum, and that what he did then did was to plead that it wasn't his debt, and he produced witnesses to show that the uh, principal of the hall for which he was the steward or manciple had said that he would pay for the beer for the party that would be given after the uh, undergraduates had taken their degrees, and that the sum that was due for the beer was exactly the same sum that was owed to Christopher Cox in uh, his will, you begin to realize that perhaps I've been following a false clue. But it does emphasize, I tell you this story, because to show that uh, when you come across a name of a man doing something that you think means that he was a bookbinder, perhaps a bookbinder or a stationer, it doesn't follow that that was his whole occupation. It's uh, then it is 
conundrums arise in a similar stamp binding. And in his will, he left his bookbinding tools to his butler. And you see, that alone is out who the binder is, and uh, dates don't fit. And all he's really concerned is that when William Foreman found Jim asking for his parchment, he put his hand to, bi uh, to uh, binding the books that he got people to copy out. And uh, I think we can now identify uh, those bindings. But take it again, you see, the real way in the university towns in the Middle Ages to get a book or to get a book, uh, was not to go to the expense, which is probably the difficulty of employing a scribe to copy it out and illuminate it, put pictures on it, education, and something to bind it. You got to copy it out yourself. And that was, I suppose, the way that a great number of them were done. You find people saying that they copied this book or that book out in very early times. And even after printing had just begun, a very smart man, John Russell, who was Bishop of Lincoln and Chancellor of the University of Oxford, and had also been a sort of diplomatic servant of uh, Edward IV, and he uh, had copied out. Uh, he had brought, when on a visit to Bruges on, for diplomatic uh, purposes, he bought two copies. Divided the purchase of the first printed Cicero, the 1466 Knights uh, Cicero, both of which still now survive. But 30 years later, he sits down saying, uh, being bored and fatigued with all these heretics and lollards that he had to try, he would sit down and copy out Thomas Necker's uh, 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 treatise on the uh, about the um, and he does it as a sort of soothing thing, like uh, uh, one of today might uh, turn to a, uh, put the gramophone on or, uh, uh, you know, read a paperback. Uh, it was a consolation. Of course, it was still to have to take out some needlework. Uh, the, uh, it's a sort of uh, actual act of writing was a sort of soothing thing to a great many people. And one has to remember that it isn't, I have to try and look back, you see, and I always think of Mercator's pro uh, projection as the proper sort of analogy for this. You look at uh, this attempt to put a map of the world, which is globular, on a piece of paper that is flat, and you've got to cut out the corners, and it means that the way from Constantinople to Newcastle in his dial looks a terrible long way. And Cat, the man who was the chief of the Praetorian Guard, was the same man who attacked Harold of Britain just before the Battle of Hastings uh, in England. And it's all it seems to be quite wrong, and you don't understand it, and you worry about it. And it's all because uh, 
uh, one thinks in terms in the case of projection and uh, not in terms of the actual measurements around a globe. And in the same way, looking backward in time at the Middle Ages, you don't realize that there were fewer people and they did each did more things. And that therefore it's quite reasonable for the man who paints the altar also to restore the miniatures in the books that lie on it, or even to uh, record the battles of the various students and their debts to the college. But I've uh, taken up in half my time in talking to you about the Middle Ages and the things that, um, uh, because in those days there was only really a sort of bespoke trade as far as um, the trade was concerned, and the manufacture of the manuscripts, which we have to use for nowadays as our authority for the texts that we wish to study, whether they're now, perhaps I'd better get on to uh, thinking aloud about the history of bibliography as a method. And you see, I think it all goes back to the study of the Bible by the, uh, in the 17th century, the Moorish and Ladino and the beginning of paleography. interest that there may be in paleography, but as a weapon in controversies about it is honest uh, opponents, which one had, who took a different view of what the text said. I mean, see, when uh, the uh, text of the Fathers, as well as of the uh, Bible, were regarded as subjects of manipulation, I mean, see, to lose the tape was absolutely it didn't suit you. And, uh, so, uh, Mabillon uh, uh, really developed the science of paleography uh, and uh, the, uh, the amount of accumulation of information about manuscripts of particular texts and about different copies of the Bible uh, began to be highly developed in certain places and of course the great English Radio Diplomatica is the first one logically considers uh, textual interest, uh, textual value from the point of view of uh, the uh, comparison and classification of scripts and writings. Uh, now I suppose if, that was only turn me further than Professor Barge's classic treatise on descriptive bibliography, seems almost the most prominent 
you know, when people started doing it and why they really did it. And it goes back, I believe, to Edward Capel, who, and it occurs, though the strokes are upright and not slanting, in two plays which he edited in 1773 and which were printed by Dryden Reach. And I think that both those, Dryden Reach was a printer that we want to have a little more study of because it's also in a book by Edward Capel, the Preludione, that the old print was changed to modern. I mean, to people sometimes say, oh, I can't do that, but it's got the S instead of S. Well, now the first uh, per, uh, book, uh, not edited, but the, the first book in which New York is consistently uh, printed as a short S and not uh, an S without the crossbar that complete, uh, is, I think, uh, Preludione Vigi 
bottom zero of the angle means first the definition of your purpose in describing any particular book or giving any how much attention is required, how much has to be known about the book for your purposes, and your purposes have to be defined. Not so many bibliographers, bibliographers who are generous characters generally, seek to do is provide all the information for all the interests which conceivably come uh, uh, to a book. I mean, say, there's hypotheses, there's physical aid, Euclid too. They shouldn't, doctors don't generally do it very well, and it's much better if it was done by a study of a one-tenth of work rather than by the study of one book in some a particular author's work. And uh, the sort of standard of bibliographical description, then, I think, uh, needs to be uh, much more closely and clearly defined by preference. And not you don't try to fit your bibliographical into a number of different sizes of shoe. Um, I'm quite certain that uh, uh, biology perhaps is most valuable, not only in raising general standards of attention, but not only in working out principles of which text to follow as the main text, uh, but also in setting standards of uh, how it should be done. But what I am saying is that uh, it is a labor and a burden and an impediment to the understanding of the nature of the book to put it all in for all purposes. Uh, Ross Bibliography is not only text, uh, the sort of thing that the textbook critic has to learn and on which pillars and reviews and adjustments. It provided the general framework with, with, within which one can recognize things as being significant uh, for the whole process of putting the uh, But if uh, that has to be segregated and set out, the first thing is to record the evidence, and then it has to be interpreted. And it is vital to distinguish between the evidence and your interpretation of it. And as the evidence has to be uh, shown in the raw what you may think about it, which will make it easily intelligible to uh, uh, everyone, is, uh, of course, your vanity in thinking that you can, and uh, a dirty thing in the way of anyone who really tries to find out about it. And it leads to the bending of the evidence. Uh, I had a bunch before, and I think he said of uh, another editor. 
think you'd better be put down rot uh, no shame rape rather than what Mr. Rossetti thinks he ought to have written and <coughs> you see the author thinks he, he can't really prove uh, the, critic, uh, the criticism of the criticism of the evidence that is to say that when you have, have obeyed uh, sincerely, thoroughly, and sensibly, I might add, uh, all the bars, criteria for uh, a text, in most texts there will remain things which doesn't add up to the, what you obviously think is the right answer. Well, now, you mustn't bend the rules on the evidence to uh, give what you think is the right answer. All you can do is to say that according to this, according to this, this, uh, uh, this is what the text should be. But uh, others might consider uh, that if you printed uh, another word or two or spelt the word differently, uh, that would provide a more uh, satisfactory solution, though there is no evidence to support it. I mean, yeah, you know what the position is, the reader can um, judge for himself. instead of logic, which may uh, be trouble to set out a table, but one ought to consider a little bit what the implications of setting a table has. A good deal of bibliographical work is now, uh, you find that there will be a table setting out the variants or setting out the uh, uh, particular features of a book or a group of books, and having set out the table, logical argument to prove something. Now, I think it's perfectly all right to segregate families of texts. I mean, so uh, set out all the known copies of uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, first edition, and find that the last three uh, title pages correspond with those sheets which have the last three books in the book added. Well, that's um, a reasonable conclusion that can be demonstrated by a table. And equally, I think you can <coughs> get a good deal of a way with uh, setting out a chronological sequence of development or decay in uh, something. But when it becomes dangerous is when you're trying to deal with tables of proportions and percentages. You see, all the information that he And um, therefore, if you take, for instance, uh, how many proofs survive of books printed in England uh, before 1640? Well, proofs. But how many sheets were actually proofs? How many books, uh, how many sheets were printed in that period which were not proofs? 
of which no proofs were full. And you've got to know those other two facts before the significance of uh, the being a proof or the not being a proof uh, becomes, can be assessed. But you can't do it in Pennsylvania, of course, because uh, you're dealing not only in units which are not comparable, comparable but different sorts of units. Uh, the sun, but now if you narrow it down by taking everything that's simplified into jackets or something like that, the um, you have to meet the trouble of defining which books uh, would be suitable for proofing, or that the author would demand a proof, or the books that couldn't possibly be proof, uh, proofed. And I mean, there's other elements in the nature of the units you are compa comparing, which um, uh, have to be uh, indeed necessarily neglected in putting this sort of information, or the inferences from this sort of information, into uh, usable form. Uh, perhaps I may indulge in a personal anecdote uh, to demonstrate this. Uh, 25 years ago, I had servant of the Board of Trade in England, and to my esteem, I had to sign for all the important machinery and that sort of thing that they bought among us. And one day, the head of the statistics department came to me and said, uh, well, you know, I'd like to have some new machines for the census production. And so I sort of, uh, you know, scratched my head and looked as cheap as I could. You know, sort of digital uh, imitation of Michelle and said to him, well, my dear sir, um, what do you want? And he said, I want a statement for census production we've got to do. And I said, well, uh, what sort of machine do you want? He said, oh, punch, this was oversimplified. Do you want punch card machines? And he said, I certainly not be good if I hadn't heard those things. And he then said, I said, but uh, how do you work it out? He said, well, you have to start from this. There are 120 trades in Great Britain. But then I thought intensified the uh, bovine uh, attitude towards us. Being interesting, I should have thought there'd have been more somehow. Oh, no, you can't have more than 120 trades in Great Britain. You can't punch more than 120 holes in a punch card. <laughs> and, you know, I got a good brief for this Vandermark Blocker. So I said, oh, I'm so sorry, my dear friend. I wouldn't have told you this if I didn't believe how important it is. There are now 678 trades in Great Britain. By double punching in the larger card, I can get you 678 holes in the uh, uh, punch card uh, machinery. And it did very well to talk about inventing the evidence when it comes to uh, rational processes that we think we can achieve and uh, control. But uh, from really inventing the evidence, much better. <laughs> and when you get to these statistical limits, uh, techniques in bibliography, uh, there are things where you ought to be able, before you do it, to write a computer program for getting them out. And believe me, uh, 
writing it on a piece of paper in eighteen and more text than uh, uh, compiling a very large uh, author bibliography. But perhaps I've said enough about uh, that because uh, it's really a warning of, of what you can do and what you can't do with a machine. And then we may be able, as I say, to control our own uh, logical, I should say, our logical processes in dealing with material once you start dealing in tables of percentages and proportions, you have to be very careful of what the entities are with which you're dealing. And a great deal of Whipchard thinking on matters which are of great importance to bibliography writing, like trying to decide how typical any custom may be, not only in the printing office, where the possibilities are reasonably limited, but in the economic events of uh, economic uh, options of publishing. And you see, uh, what the author thinks the publisher will stand for or take is a sort of taking it back beyond the mere description of the book into knowing what sort of books were profitable and how the mind of patron and author worked in relation to the expense of printing. But uh, I don't want to, uh, indeed my time is running out. And I do want to say that I think the future of uh, bibliography as a real development lies in printing as many as possible of the documents about that shed any light on the history of the trade and authorship in as raw a state as possible. What we want is not uh, a garbage about uh, uh, how much Storm paid Samuel Johnson to give for something, but the whole of the Storm ledgers uh, in facsimile with an index, and we can allow our sons and grandsons to uh, uh, quarrel about what facsimile of the text of the ledgers really means. And that goes for practically everything in the way of material that can be used uh, for taking um, a very much more enlightening view of the process of the enlargement of uh, the human mind. Within my lifetime, the human mind has begun to understand the functions of astronomy, and from the study of the infinitely small to get some idea both of the potentialities of destruction and the physical genesis of individual beings. The understanding of the development of man's mind is not less important or less complicated. The that cannot be this cannot be charted except from man's record duly and bibliographically measured. Perhaps I might here expand this by recalling to you the rhyme, which I've always supposed was uh, written by Swift. Big fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them. Little fleas have smaller fleas, and so ad infinitum. So it is clear that the primum mobile of the most effective itch 
lies very far back among the smallest trees. And it is not, I hope, presumptuous to claim an equally prominent place for the minute technologies of bibliography in our understanding of the expansion of the mind of man. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. for coming. <laughs>